1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 21, where Paul writes, I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that thou observe these things without preferring one before another, doing nothing by partiality. Lay hands suddenly on no man, neither be partaker of other men's sins. Keep thyself pure. Drink no longer water, but use a little wine for thy stomach's sake and thine often infirmities. Some men's sins are opened beforehand, going before to judgment, and some men they follow after. Likewise also the good works of some are manifest beforehand, and they that are otherwise cannot be hid. Amen. We'll end our reading at the end of chapter 5. And we know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. I want to call your attention in particular to the last two verses of the chapter, verses 24 and 25. Note again what Paul says, Some men's sins are open beforehand, going before to judgment, and some men they follow after. Likewise, also the good works of some are manifest beforehand, and they that are otherwise cannot be hid. The focal point to these two verses, verses 24 and 25, is the truth of judgment. There's coming a judgment. All men know this intuitively, even if they try very hard not to dwell on it. In verse 24, Paul speaks of the sins of men going before to judgment and the sins of men following after them to judgment. What Paul is saying amounts to this. Flagrant and open sins that are apparent to all will be dealt with in the day of judgment. And secret sins that no one sees but God will also be dealt with on the day of judgment. In verse 25, the same thing applies, but from the other side of the coin, so to speak. The good works of some that men perform that are visible to all will be commended on that day of judgment. And the good works that are perhaps done behind the scene that no one knows of but God those also will be commended by God on that same judgment day. Such a contrast between what God condemns and what God commends brings to mind the words of Paul in Romans 11 and verse 22, Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God, on them which fell severity, but toward thee goodness, if thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou also shall be cut off. The goodness and severity of God. You know, it occurs to me that such a message as the goodness and severity of God is preached to us even by nature. You could call this the realm of Natural revelation. There's nothing quite like a beautiful day 
with clear skies and gentle breezes and mild temperatures. We've known some of those days of late, haven't we? What a blessing to take in a deep breath of fresh air and feel that gentle breeze caressing your skin. But on the other hand, neither is there anything quite so sobering as to behold the desolation that follows a storm. Collapsed buildings, roofs blown off houses, towering giant trees plucked out of the ground by their roots, laying flat against the ground, debris scattered everywhere, overturned and smashed vehicles, rendered useless. What a contrast, and what a manifestation, arguably, of the goodness and severity of God. Now, in these closing verses in chapter 5, I believe that Paul is calling upon Timothy to live and to exercise his ministry in the light of coming judgment. In the minds of some Christians, this kind of thinking and living would seem to run counter to the gospel. After all, aren't we taught by the gospel that Christ died for our sins? Isn't it basic gospel truth that Christ bore the judgment for those that would believe in him? Haven't we come to love the kind of statements that we find in Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, where Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Oh, to be sure, there is no denying such precious gospel truth. But do such truths take the whole matter of judgment out of the Christian's heart and mind? What about such verses as these in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10, where Paul writes, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Or what about that scene in Matthew 25, where you find the nations before Christ's judgment bar, where the sheep are separated from the goats, and there are those that are cast out of Christ's presence into everlasting destruction, and there are others that enter into the joy of the Lord. Turns out that the New Testament has quite a bit to say, even with regard to Christians standing before that judgment bar. So in Romans 14 and verse 11, we read, For it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. And as I say, when we come to the end of 1 Timothy 5, Paul wants Timothy to be aware of that day. And so, can we conclude, therefore, that God, who inspired Paul to write these words to Timothy, he wants you and me to be aware of that day also. So that's what I want to focus on this morning, the truth of this coming day of judgment. Some men's sins are open beforehand, going before to judgment, and some men they follow after. 
Likewise, also the good works of some are manifest beforehand, and they that are otherwise cannot be hid. I think and hope that you'll find over the course of our study that it won't be all gloom and doom. You might be tempted to think so by the way I've introduced the subject, but I can assure you even before we start that there is perfect compatibility between the gospel we cling to and the truth of that coming day. What then do these verses teach us that speak to us of sins going before and following after, and of good good works going before and following after? Well, consider with me, first of all, that these verses do, in fact, teach us to fear. These verses teach us to fear. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hebrews 10.31. There's no point in trying to skirt that issue to the degree that we suppress or downplay the issue of a coming day of judgment. To that same degree, we diminish the glorious truth of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Salvation really doesn't take on much meaning unless you can appreciate that coming day of judgment. The good news in the matter of judgment is that it's our Savior who is judge of all the earth. All power and authority has been committed to him. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1, we read, My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Oh, it's good to know that we have such an advocate, one who will stand with us and answer for us. This does not, however, take away from the fact that judgment is a fearful thing. When you read the account of the Apostle John, seeing the vision of Christ in all his glory on the Isle of Patmos, where John wrote the book of Revelation, we can't help but note that even this blessed apostle who knew Jesus intimately while Jesus walked this earth still falls at his feet as a dead man when he sees that glorious vision of Christ. Listen to the words of Revelation chapter 1 beginning in verse 12. This is John now speaking of his experience on the Isle of Patmos. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks, and in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. 
and he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And now in verse 17, you see the impact that this vision of Christ and his glory has on John when it says, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. Oh, it seems, doesn't it, that so many previous revelations of the glory of Christ arguably come together in that scene in Revelation 1. When I read of the sound of his voice being as the sound of many waters, I'm reminded of the glory of God at Mount Sinai, where the voice of God was exceeding loud. And when I read of his hairs being white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes as a flame of fire, I'm reminded of the glory of Christ in Isaiah's vision of him. In Isaiah chapter 6, where there was such an emphasis placed on his holiness. And when I read of his countenance shining as the sun in its strength, I'm reminded of the vision of his glory in the Mount of Transfiguration. This is the one before whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And this is the one we also, before whom we also will appear. So again, 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. You've heard me say it many times from this pulpit, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the holy is understanding. Proverbs 9 and verse 10. And even though godly fear does not end with the terrifying view of the judge of all the earth, it does nevertheless begin there. There is an element in the fear of the Lord of frightful terror. When you come to realize how glorious Christ is and how fearful he is in his glory, we dare not overlook or play down or ignore this aspect of godly fear. When Christians lose sight of the glory of Christ on his judgment throne, then they find it very easy to turn grace into presumption. And they find it very easy to treat sin lightly. Now our text in 1 Timothy tells us that some men's sins are open beforehand, going before to judgment. It's as if the blatant sins of some men race ahead to that judgment bar and they wait there to accuse the sinner once he arrives. These are the flagrant sins of some men. These are the undeniable sins that are so exposed even in this world that no one, not even the sinner himself, would attempt to deny them. But then there are other sins that follow after. These are the secret sins that some men thought weren't known to anyone. It will be known on that judgment day that God has seen every deed, 
every secret deed. And God has heard every word, every word of gossip, every idle word, every profane word. And what's more, God is aware of every thought, every sinful thought, every sinful daydream. God knows it all. Nothing escapes those eyes of Christ that are like a flame of fire. Those eyes can see right into the heart of man, and they can see through every motive of man. So it does become a fearful thing to contemplate that some men's sins are open beforehand, going before to judgment, and some men they follow after. So we learn that from these verses. It's a very important lesson we do well to keep in mind day by day. But would you consider with me next that not only is the knowledge of judgment a cause for fear, But secondly, these verses teach us to hope. They teach us to fear, but they also teach us to hope. I said in my introduction that Christ is not only the judge before whom every knee will bow, but he's also our advocate. An advocate, you could say, is like a lawyer. Well, I don't know if a better lawyer you could have on the day of judgment than have Christ represent you. And as our advocate, he has an all-prevailing plea (coughs) for those that put their trust in him. His hands, you see, are nail-scarred hands. And when those nail-scarred hands are presented on behalf of the Christian, they will testify to the truth that the Christian's sins, as bad as they be, and as many as they may be, they have nevertheless been atoned for. They've been paid for. They've been judged already. And so the very same throne of judgment for the unbeliever will be a throne of grace to those who trust in Christ. Oh, how great will be our need for grace on that day. But oh, how great will be that grace that will be our portion. When I think of the terror of that judgment day, it makes me most thankful for the verses in the New Testament that tell me that God's grace is greater. When you pit sin against grace, grace wins. Grace is more bountiful. Grace is abundant. Let me read some verses from Romans chapter 5 that emphasize this point. But God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. A little further down in verse 18 in Romans 5. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. 
For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. And then note it here, boy, this is one to underline and highlight and commit to memory and ask the Lord to burn it into your heart. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound why I say this is a scene of hope. These verses teach us hope. When you place the grace of God you see on the one side of the scale and you place the sin of man on the other side of the scale, place your own sins on the other side, grace by far outweighs the sin. And the reason grace can outweigh the sin is because that grace is found in Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is righteous. So when grace tips the scales, it's because righteousness tips the scales in favor of Christ. This is why you want to be found in him when that judgment day comes. One preacher of old has remarked, the coming day of judgment is a doctrine that has been abused, misunderstood, and often used to manipulate people, but correctly understood in the context of God's character and justice, it is a doctrine full of comfort for Christians. We can also, we, we, we can amazingly draw comfort from that day of judgment. And that comfort is all the more magnified when you see the other side of the coin, so to speak. Just as verse 24 in our text conveys to us the terror of that coming day when men's sins go before them and follow them to that judgment bar, so in verse 25 we read of men's works doing the same thing. Likewise, also the good works of some are manifest beforehand, and they that are otherwise cannot be hid. What you do for Christ, you see, will count before God. And there may be things that you've done that are open for all to see. I think of some of the great preachers throughout the history of the church. I think of men like George Whitfield. I think of a Jonathan Edwards. I think of a Charles Spurgeon or a Martin Luther. These men spread the news far and wide of Jesus Christ, mighty to save. Whitfield and Spurgeon established orphanages to take in children and teach them the gospel. Spurgeon started a college to train preachers to more effectively preach the gospel. Oh, here are works then that race to that judgment throne, as it were, in order to wait there for the reward that will be their due. But let's face it, there aren't many Whitfields or Spurgeons in the world, nor have there ever been. I dare say that the day of judgment will show that the kingdom of Christ made its greatest advances through the simple and largely unseen things that have taken place throughout history. The parents who instructed their children in the ways of Christ, the mom who homeschooled her children and taught them the gospel, 
the dad who worked hard to provide for his family and who also considered his workplace to be his mission field. Oh, it will be the simple things in the way we minister to other believers that will be exposed on that judgment day and will be commended by Christ. Matthew 25 and verse 31 presents to us the terror and the comfort of that day. Beginning in verse 31, we read of the comfort of that day to believers. Listen to what Matthew writes. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory, and before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand and the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was in hunger, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in. Naked, and ye clothed me. I was sick, and ye visited me. I was in prison, and ye came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee, and hungered, and fed thee, or thirsty, and gave thee drink? When saw we thee, a stranger, and took thee in, or naked, and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick, or in prison, and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. The thing that I find fascinating in this scene is that the sheep are being rewarded for things that they were barely even aware that they had done. It's the simple things that we do for each other as Christians and the simple ways in which we sow the seeds of the gospel that capture the attention of our Lord. He sees it all, and he remembers it. This truth is beautifully captured by the prophet Malachi in the third chapter of his book. Beginning in verse 16, we read, Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and thought upon his name. And they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels, and I will spare them as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. So the day of judgment teaches us fear, but that same day of judgment also teaches us hope. Our hope, of course, is found in Jesus Christ. Our hope is not found in thinking that any good we may do will outweigh the bad. The scales of justice are hopelessly tipped against us when we think like that. But Christ can tip the scales in our favor if we put our trust in him. And when we are joined to him, then it becomes possible for us to be rewarded for what we do in our service to him. 
There's one more lesson to be learned from that coming day of judgment that I'll call your attention to and that I'll mention only briefly and then we're done. These verses you see not only teach us to fear and to hope, but these verses also teach us to have patience. They teach us to have patience. How often are Christians misunderstood? Paul was cautioning Timothy about this. Interesting to note how verse 23, I think, ties into our text. In verse 23, we find Paul instructing Timothy to drink no longer water, but use a little wine for thy stomach's sake and thine often infirmities. Now, in ancient times, there were no water purification plant such as what we have today, it's quite possible that the water Timothy was drinking at the time wasn't all that great and may have even contributed to his stomach ailments. So Paul says to him, use a little wine. Wine, you see, through the fermentation process that produces it, can create a product that's better than water, more healthy than water to drink, especially if that water is corrupted. Of course, the downside to this pure drink of wine would be the alcohol produced through the fermentation process. Could it be that Timothy went out of his way to avoid bringing reproach to Christ by abstaining from the use of any alcoholic drink and that he did this to his physical detriment? And could it be that there would be those that would accuse Timothy of being a drunkard if he used wine in any way at all? After all, Christ himself was accused of being a glutton and a wine-bibber. No small wonder, then, that his followers would be accused of being drunkards. It's in response to the potential of being misjudged by men that Paul reminds Timothy that some men's sins are open beforehand, going before to judgment, and some men they follow after. Likewise, also the good works of some are manifest beforehand, and they that are otherwise cannot be hid. The principle that can be drawn from Paul's words is just this. The Lord will set matters straight when he returns we sometimes grow anxious about that sort of thing as believers. In Psalm 73, and again in Psalm 77, this was the complaint of the psalmist. It seems as though the wicked have their way in this world, and the righteous suffer at their hands. The psalmist admits in Psalm 70, 73 and verse 2, But as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped. And the reason for his near slip was on account of what he perceived to be the inequities in this world. The wicked seem to have it made. Everything seems to go their way. They're the ones that live lives of ease. They're the ones that have the great riches. The Christian, on the other hand, is, is uh, so often struggling and maligned and persecuted. And that had gotten the best. That kind of thinking got the best of the psalmist. 
In the end, the psalmist acknowledges that he was foolish and had for a moment lost his perspective. Listen to the way he expresses this, beginning in verse 16 of Psalm 73. When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then understood I their end. Surely thou didst set them in slippery places. Thou castest them down into destruction. How are they brought into desolation as in a moment they are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awaketh, so, O Lord, when thou awakest, thou shalt despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved, and I was pricked in my reins. So foolish was I and ignorant. I was as a beast before thee. Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou hast holden me by my right hand. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel, and afterward receive me to glory. Do you see how the psalmist admits that for a time, the only thing he could see was what was immediately before him? But then he went to church, you could say. Went into the sanctuary of the Lord. And he received there an attitude adjustment or a perspective adjustment. He was able again to see the big picture. And what this gained for him was patience. And so must it be for you and for me when we're misunderstood as Christians or when it seems that the Christ rejecter is the one who prospers in this world and lives a life of ease, when you find yourself being consumed by that kind of thinking, then you would do well to call to mind the words of our text. Some men's sins are open beforehand, going before to judgment, and some men they follow after. Likewise also the good works of some are manifest beforehand, and they that are otherwise cannot be hid. The brothers and sisters in Christ keep the coming day of judgment ever in view. Let it teach you fear. Let it teach you to hope. And let it teach you to have patience, even as you await that coming day when the Lord will set everything right and usher in a new heaven and new earth. Let's close then in prayer. O oh Lord, as we bow in thy presence now and bring this meeting to a close, we thank thee that even though this coming day of judgment is true and very real, clearly revealed in thy word, clearly known in the consciences of men, we thank thee, Lord, that though it be fearful, this fear does not have to dominate our souls because we find in it also our hope, our hope in Jesus Christ, who fulfilled the law of God by his perfect life, and he did this on our behalf so that his merit would be charged to our accounts. And then he paid a debt that we could not pay through his atoning death. So, Lord, help us never to lose sight of this judgment to come. And may we live in the light of it. May we walk in the fear of God. 
and in the love of Christ, and may we patiently endure all the inequities of this present world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.